Um, so we are going to be back in Romans today. We are in Romans chapter 11. If you want to turn with me, that's going to be verses 13 through 24. Romans 11, 13 through 24. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Praise God. Thank you all. Good morning. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Sarah. We are in Romans 11. I'm going to uh, pause and pray here, and then we'll jump right in together, okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for another opportunity to dig into your word together. These are words of life. They are nourishing. They are necessary. We live by them. Help us to feast today. Lord, help these fish and loaves be, be plenty for this congregation to, to feast on today. Your word is, is said to be like a hammer that breaks a hard, proud, rebellious heart into pieces. It's said to be milk that nourishes a famished soul. It's said to be fire that, that purges and purifies us. It's a, a surgical sword that lays us open and and brings healing, the bomb of the gospel, the rescue of Jesus. It's a mirror that shows us our truest reflection, the most accurate view of who we are, what we have become, and what we need. So I pray today that your spirit would come, and as the author of the word of God, he would open it up to us and illuminate our minds and hearts to receive it, Lord, and that we would leave here helped and transformed and changed by your grace. Pray for those who are watching from home, that they would feel a deep connection, Lord, and would be able to rejoin us soon. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, we're coming to a close in that section, and we've titled this, God's Sovereign Plan. And it's really all about what is God's plan for Israel, and how do we fit into that plan? He's taken three chapters. Some have called it a parenthesis. I think it's much greater than a, than a parenthesis. I've never known a three-chapter parenthesis. I'll get lost by then and forget what they were trying to say. This is a section that Paul actually pulled the car over. You ever do that? He said, all right, time to pull the car over, time to have the talk. So that's what he's doing. He's laying out God's, God's sovereign plan for Israel, how we fit into that sovereign plan as Gentiles. They, as a people, as a massive group of people, have rejected the gospel. They have not received Yeshua, Jesus, as their Jewish Messiah. They've rejected him. They've trespassed. That word means a false step. They've taken a false step this way. But God used that as an occasion to open the door so that the Gentiles, by faith, could step in and stand. They are branches that have been temporarily broken off of this olive tree. We're going to talk about that today. And we, as a wild olive shoot, how about that? If you're a Gentile, you're a wild olive shoot. You know your fruit's not even edible. It's bitter. It's shriveled up. It's worthless. It's just there. My kids have found, I don't know what it is. It's the, what is it, honey? A wild lemon tree, a wild orange tree, or something that was, I don't know where, where it came from or what it's doing there. It's way back in the, in the forest behind our house, and they bring fruit from that all the time. And they keep forgetting. They'll get a knife out and cut it up and peel it and say, here, Daddy, eat this. And I say, that's disgusting. I'm not touching that. I can just smell it so pungent. and it's, You just can't, you can't eat. It's wild. It's worthless. But what God has done is amazing. And Paul talks about that in this chapter. He's taken a wild olive shoot that, that bore fruit that was worthless. And he's grafted it into this nourishing olive tree, Israel. And that has, we've received the nourishment from that, and the medicine from, from the root and from the stem has made us bear fruit. Paul is guiding us down this path in this section, but listen, today's sermon overall, it's, it's, it's sobering, it's, it's a warning is really what it is. Paul's about to land the plane in this section, and the end where he's taking us is not arrogance. There has been a, a spirit of arrogance historically coming from Gentiles toward Jews, both saved Jews and unsaved Jews. Some would call it anti-Semitism. Some would call it racism, just this air of superiority. We believe we received Jesus. You didn't. You killed him. You rejected your Messiah. And now God's rejected you. It's just this condescending attitude that we're morally superior, we're elite. And Paul's going to attack that head on. And when he's finished here, the path that he is taking us down, it does not lead to arrogance or pride or spiritual elitism at all. I want to remind us where he's taking us. He's aiming at worship. We'll be there the next time we're in Romans together. I know I've read this a few times. I want to read it again because this is what Paul is after and it's certainly what I'm after as a pastor. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable... His ways, that's another way of saying past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See, Paul already knew this mystery about the Gentiles being brought in because all along God's plan, beginning 
in Genesis and coming through Abraham has been that he would call out for himself a people, right? He would bless them. He would enrich them. He would protect them and preserve them. And through them, they would be a channel through which the whole world, the whole globe would be blessed. And Paul is saying, look, nothing can frustrate God's purposes. He's fulfilling his promise. He's making good on his plan. Everything along the way that looked like a a U-turn, a dead end, a detour, an obstruction, all of that God sovereignly and wisdom providentially used to accomplish his purposes. And it blows Paul's mind. It still does. He already knew that. He'd been teaching that. He's just writing it, and he's still blown away. It leads him to wonder. It's, It's stunning when you think about it, how God could have done this. So really, what God is after, and what Paul is after, and what I'm after, is that we are grateful that we're humble, and that we're hopeful. Those are the three things, and that's really going to fall into the outline I want to use here. Here it is. This is the the title of this message. It's really for Gentiles. If you're a Jew and you're here, I'm grateful. There's plenty of stuff in here to encourage you and fill you with hope as you consider what is God's plan for my people. But this is primarily directed at Gentiles. He says that in verse 13, uh, if you back up there not going to reread the whole passage, but he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So he's pulled the car over, and this whole section is really directed toward Gentiles because he knows our tendency. He knows how something good and noble and amazing that should lead us to worship can instead lead to pride and lead to arrogance and lead to boasting that's, that's unwarranted and that's sinful and offensive. So he's talking to Gentiles. So here's the outline. Sorry, I'm bring that bring that up again. We're grateful insiders as Gentiles. So he gives us, number one, a reminder of God's grace. Does anybody need to be reminded of God's grace today? Do you forget it? I forget it every day of my life. I'm thankful we have reminders like communion every first Sunday, baptism. This is an ordinance too. This is a proclamation of the gospel. It's an ordinance that God gave to the church. We're supposed to be hearing the gospel every Sunday when we gather together so that Our gospel amnesia can get corrected, can get medicated so that we can remember together. And that's certainly true in this passage. He gives us a reminder of God's grace. He says, you stand by faith. You Gentiles, remember, you're only here because of God's grace. And you stand here by faith. Secondly, he gives us a warning against pride. That's the bulk. That's the meat of the sandwich in this passage. And the third and last thing is we get a notice of God's power. And that's the most encouraging, hope-filling thing Paul reminds us, look, if God was able to take a wild olive shoot like you Gentiles who were idolaters filled with all kinds, and if you look at the time the New Testament was written, filled with idolatry, sexual immorality, barbaric, so far away from God, strangers to his grace, alienated, without God in the world, without hope, living in darkness, if God was able to reach them and graft them and bear fruit to his glory, how much more will he be able to take his people who naturally were a part of that tree and like globally renew the whole world. Man, that's stunning to think about. It really is. I'm so grateful for chapter 11. So number one, we have a reminder of God's grace. And let's look at it together. It's in verses 18 and 19 and 20. He says, remember, it is not you who support the root. And, and, and I should say this, olives, I believe an olive is, is like the, uh, the natural gardening symbol for Israel, that and a vine, right? The olive tree. And Israel all over the, it's, it's unarguable. 
Olive tree represents Israel, and vine represents Israel. That was one of Jesus' favorite analogies. It was a prophetic analogy you find in the Old Testament, and certainly Paul's going to tap into that too. So he says, remember, it is not you who support the root, you Gentiles. You're on the tree now, and you're bearing fruit, but you're not supporting the root. The root is supporting you. You have a Jewish Messiah. Jesus was a Jewish man, and you have Jewish scriptures. And remember, Jesus told the woman at the well, salvation is of the what? Jews. So we don't support the root. The root supports us. So he says, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And Paul says, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. Not because they're inferior to you. Not because you're better than them. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. And I love that. That's a reminder of God's grace. And that word stand, it's the same word that we find in one of my favorite passages. I read it with our elders the other night. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is speaking to Christians. He's writing to a Christian church, and I love the way Paul is always preaching the gospel to people who already knew it. That's why I preach the gospel all the time at this church. I know you already know it, but if you're anything like me and the rest of the world, you forget it. So we need reminders, right? So Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, that you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you continue in the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul used, it's, it's almost identical to what he said in 1 Corinthians. He's saying, hey, this gospel I preached to you, you stand by it. You stand by faith. Jesus rescued you out of the sheer magnitude of his grace and his mercy. He took pity on you. He didn't pick you because you're so awesome and God's so lucky to have you in his kingdom. No, it's by sheer grace. You stand by faith. And it's a good reminder. What do we have by faith? Oh my goodness, man. Remember last week we ended with this last point? We have been enriched. And I love to to say it exactly like I did last week. If you consider what's the, I wish something good would have happened to me. Anybody ever think that? You start feeling sorry for yourself. My AC broke. I'm in debt. I got this huge mortgage payment, inflation, Duke Energy's overcharging me, my kids don't respect me. Man, I wish something good would happen to me. Do you know, my friends, if you're thinking clearly, let's think clearly and biblically, like a Christian, the greatest thing that could have ever happened to you, if you're in Christ, has happened to you. You, you have, you've cashed in on the spiritual lottery. Paul says, we've been blessed in Christ, listen to this, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You hit it big time, but not at Vegas, okay? Something much better than that has been given to you. You have a new identity. Remember, we rehearsed all this. You have an inheritance. You have hope. You have a deeper meaning and a purpose to your existence. You've been given spiritual gifts. You've been given all these promises. You're like immortal in a sense until God's finished with you, right? You have a father, you have a kingdom, you have an assurance, you have a joy. You have all these things, they've been given to you by grace. Your sins have been forgiven. You have the hope of heaven. You say, I'm sick. I can promise you this, and I can promise you this. If you are in Christ, and there's a physical sickness of any kind upon you, you will be healed eventually. Either in this life, by God's goodness, that he extends to some people just by his mercy. We pray for that, don't we? But you will be healed in the next life for sure. God's going to resurrect your body. He's going to renew it. He's going to restore the whole planet. So in Christ, we're all going to experience renewal and healing 
and restoration. That's a, that's a wealth too, just to know that. Man, on your worst day. I think about heaven now as a 48-year-old than I ever have. I, jo- I joined the a gym again. It's been 20 years since I joined the gym. I've never been in so much pain in my life the last two weeks. Because I'm not 20 anymore, even though I think I am sometimes. This body breaks the second law of thermodynamics. Everything breaks down. Nobody's getting out of here alive unless you're in Christ. Then you will. But what Paul's telling us is, I, I don't like it when people say, yeah, I'm getting into heaven by the, by the skin of my teeth. What? What do you mean by that? So you're trusting in your effort, and it wasn't much, so you're barely getting in. You're not a Christian at all then. You, you're clueless about what the gospel is. It's not the skin of your teeth. It's the blood of Christ that you're getting in on, right? Full sonship. We don't have to war. We, listen, Christians should be the most unparanoid people in the world. We don't have to walk around, walk around wondering, are we enough? No, you're not. That's why I hate self-help books. You're awesome. You're enough. No, you're not. He's enough. He's awesome. Let's trust in him, right? Let's persevere in that belief, not trusting in ourselves. How, I mean, where did that get us in the first place? So, we have been enriched. We've won the spiritual lottery and all because of faith. And man, I hope if nothing else in these chapters, you have begun to think again what you have been given freely by God, by His sheer grace. One of my favorite movies of all times is this movie right here. And you know, you got to be careful with every movie. I'm pretty sure that's a clean movie. The book was incredible. I read the book when I was breaking up tile in our home back in 2012 when we moved back from California. It's the most amazing book I've ever read. The movie, there's a section in the movie where Edmond Dante, uh, he's in prison, falsely in prison, Chateau de Chateau d'If for 14 years. He doesn't belong there. He's innocent. But he meets a priest while he's in there, and, with the, and the priest mentors him and trains him how to sword fight and encourages him because he's grown disillusioned. He's starting to question God's existence. He's praying for vengeance, and he meets this priest, and this priest mentors him, teaches him how to sword fight, and with his dying breath, the priest passes, tells him where this map is, gives him this map. And it's this un, uncountable treasure it's on an island off the coast of the, uh, off the Italian coast at a, an island called Monte Cristo. And so he, he ends up, you'll have to watch the movie or read the book. He escapes, okay? He finds a friend named Jacobo, and together they go to this island and they find the treasure. And it's my favorite part of the movie because just the way the cinematography is, they've lit up this cave, there's blue lighting underneath, and uh, Jim Caviezel plays the Count of Monte Cristo. He dives down underneath, and there's just treasure chest and treasure chest filled with diamonds and gold and coins and it shows them loading it on the boat and it shows Jacobo like whistling and yelling and throwing coins everywhere and celebrating and he walks up to Edmond Dante and this is what he says the boat cannot hold any more and there are at least eight more loads down there and of course Edmond Dante's just he's just sitting there because he's so angry. He wants revenge. He wants revenge. So his friend says, do you not understand? You are wealthier than any man I have ever heard of. Whatever your problems were, they're over. Now, we know money doesn't do that, but spiritually, when I watch that movie now, I think about that like, man, that's what Paul's been trying to tell us for 10 chapters. He's looking us in. He's grabbing us by the shoulders. He's grabbing our face, and he says, do you not understand? You are more spiritually wealthy than anybody in the entire world. Whatever problems you had before, they're over. 
Now we get it. We're still in a broken body on a fallen planet. And there's relational conflict. There's all kinds of issues. But the greatest problem we had has been solved. Amen? So this is Paul's reminder about that. This is Paul's reminder. The riches of God's grace have been freely given to us, not because we're better ethnically, socially, intellectually, or even morally. The issue is faith. The Jews were this branch that was broken off temporarily because of their unbelief, and we Gentiles were grafted in on the basis of our faith. So we ought to give thanks to God for the riches that we have received, honestly, at the expense of this temporary breaking off of the Jewish nation. So now Paul changes gears here, and I'm going to change gears too. Paul is going to get up all in our kitchen. And so I'm going to get up all in our kitchen. My kitchen too. This is a warning, and I think it's necessary. It's good for us. We have been bathing in grace. We have been soaking in God's sovereign plan. The gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. We have eternal security. And Paul knows that that is a doctrine that most certainly will be abused. It has been abused. I can tell you this. I am from the South and there's no sweeter, more precious doctrine to Bible-believing Christians in the Bible Belt, the buckle, than eternal security. Once saved, always saved is how it's phrased there. And there's also not a doctrine that's been more abused and confusing and twisted and perverted. And Satan loves to twist that doctrine. As sweet and precious as it is, man, it's one of the devil's favorite weapons. That people have false assurance and they have false peace. And they're, they're naming God by name only, but their life is, is profligate. There's no fruit. There's no commitment. There's no loyalty. There's no following Jesus. There's no allegiance. They're not a disciple in any stretch of the word. But, but they say, I, I prayed a prayer once. I went to this revival and I heard an evangelist and I gave my, my heart to Jesus there when they didn't, it wasn't really a commitment. You know, there's a parable of soils that's told by Jesus. And he says, a sower, behold, a sower went out to sow some seed he threw on the hard ground and the birds came and plucked it up. There was no interest, no response. Other seed he sowed and it fell on rocky soil. And that means there was this bedrock, like limestone maybe. It's all underneath Israel's topography. All the people that heard Jesus preach would have known what he was talking about. It's shallow soil. There's no depth for the root. There's rock underneath there. So this sower sowed some of those seeds, and the seeds sprouted right up and hit the rock and pushed up overnight. They had this abundant fruit that was really fast. These people, and that represents new converts. They're passionate, man. They're just filled with joy and excitement until their faith costs them something. Persecution comes or distractions, something that chokes out, right? This is the next the next illustration in that parable, some seeds he threw among thorns and they choked out like the riches and the deceitfulness of this world. So Paul is tapping into that teaching by Jesus and he is giving a warning here. He's saying, look, you Gentiles have been grafted in by faith. And because of unbelief, because of barrenness, because of their fruitlessness, the nation of Israel has been temporarily broken off. And he's saying, therefore, do not be arrogant against the branches. He's saying, don't be boastful. Don't be proud. Don't think that you're here because you're better. And the warning is this, because the same thing could happen to you if you become unfruitful. If you have no fruit that bears evidence that you're a follower of Jesus, that you're in his kingdom, you could be broken off too. And I know that leaves a lot of people unsettled, so I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about why are there warnings in the Bible? Why after Romans 8, 
Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Why do we have this warning? Watch out. Beware. Be careful. Bear fruit. Continue to follow Jesus. Stay in his love. Stay in his kingdom. Why is that? that, Has that ever confused you? Why do we have warnings in the Bible? So let me read this passage again, just to put this in context. This is what Paul says. Verse 17 Yeah, we go. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Now, just stop there for a minute. He doesn't say whether he's talking about the Jews that were hardened and unbelieving and had rejected Jesus, or if he's talking about the Jews, the small remnant, remember, who did believe like the Nicodemuses and the Apostle Pauls. He doesn't say whether it's believing Jews or unbelieving Jews because you know what? Prejudice has a way of being indiscriminate anyway. And pride does. He's saying, don't be arrogant against the branches. This word, don't be arrogant, it was used to describe a Greek gladiator when they stood over their defeated opponent in the ring, in the Colosseum. He's saying, don't be boastful. Don't be arrogant. It's not just don't be proud. He's saying, don't be arrogant against somebody else. So this is against an air of superiority. Like, we belong here. We're the chosen. We're secure. We're anchored because we're so amazing. God is so lucky to have us. He would never, there's, there's no risk, there's no danger at all of God ever turning his face away from us. It's, it's kind of that arrogant assumption. It's presumption is what it is. It's not really assurance, it's presumption. And there's all kinds of warnings in the Bible against that. So verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, and the Apostle Paul is anticipating the argument here from from Gentiles all over the Mediterranean world in Asia Minor. I'm sure he had heard this argument. Then you will say, Gentile, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. The eye is like an emphatic, so that I might be grafted in. All of that was for me. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. And we think, oh, I don't like that. See, I I don't like that whole, I'm supposed to be afraid thing. Well, that's not exactly what Paul is saying. It's It's more of be sober, be humble. Don't be presumptuous. Be grateful. Be humble. Be stunned at God's grace to you. Stay low, right? But fear, for if God did not spare the natural branch, neither will he spare you. So he's saying, look, if the branches that actually belong there and then became barren and fruitless were cut off, don't be arrogant. God can do that to you too if you don't bear fruit, if you don't continue. So this is a warning against pride and against arrogance. And to fully get what Paul is saying for this point, I want to give you just a little brief horticultural lesson and uh, grafting lesson on all the trees. So check this out. If there is a tree that has branches on it, the tree seems to be good. It's not dead. Maybe the branches are old. Maybe they've been injured. Maybe they're sick. For whatever reason, they're not bearing fruit. This was a trick of the trade. You could cut those branches off and you could go and get a wild branch and you could graft it in the very place that you cut that branch and it would like kickstart the whole tree system, the root system. I don't know how. I'm not a hoarder. Somebody can come and share this with me. Uh, 
that was a practice in the Mediterranean world, and it was like a last, a last effort, last emergency condition you could do this. Because it was risky, right? And so Paul is, is borrowing this gardening horticultural analogy that everyone, it was an aggregate society. Everyone would have understood it. He said, you know what God did? It's amazing. He went and took this wild tree that was unnatural. He took those branches. He grafted them in, and that like rebooted the whole tree. It's like hitting the reset button on your computer. You don't want to do that because it messes up everything, right? But sometimes you got to do it. The beach ball spinning or whatever's going on. You're like, man, I got to reboot this thing. So I'm going to do it. It's risky, but you do it. That's what God did. That's the horticultural illustration. We have, have been these wild shoot. And what would happen is, not only would it reboot the tree, but it would begin to bear fruit. And, and Paul is saying, this is unnatural. And here's what he means by that. Usually, if you have a, man, I still, this blows my mind. I don't understand how it works. Let's just say you have a peach tree. And the branches aren't bearing peaches, so you cut them off. You go and you cut off a plum branches from a plum tree, and you graft them in. What kind of fruit is that tree going to bear? Plums, that's right. But Paul is saying, God did something miraculous. He took a wild olive branch, and he grafted it into a native olive tree, and it was good native olives that came out of it. How? It's miraculous. God did that. He did that. He's able to do that. And he's also able to do with you what he did with the natural branch. If you don't bear fruit, cut you off. So this is a warning that's specifically for the Gentiles. This is what one man said. If we see that God was willing to cut off branches from his own original tree because of their unbelief, why would we who have been grafted somewhat unnaturally into this Jewish tree ever think we can get away with the very things that got them removed? It's a good warning. And what got them removed? Unbelief, barrenness, presumption, drifting, pride. I want to ask this question. Here's the warning. Here's me getting into your kitchen, okay? What is Paul saying to Americans in 2023? What do you think he's saying to us? Do you think this is a warning against cultural Christianity? I've heard it said Christians in the South are saved in the same way that people are vaccinated. They got just enough of the real thing to keep them from the good stuff, right? I know that analogy breaks down. Nobody considers the flu good stuff. But you get what I'm saying? We've been like inoculated. We've been vaccinated with gospel. We're like, well, that's enough of that. I'm going to stay away from it now. I've got enough. I'm in the kingdom. I prayed a prayer. I went to a youth camp. I rededicated my life. But let's not get too crazy, right? I think he would be warning against that. Like the parable of the soils that I just said. The root sprouts up, but persecution, when it actually costs you to be a follower of Jesus, when things really get real, when the rubber meets the road, when you can honor Jesus, maybe publicly or in a circle of friends, it's going to be awkward and uncomfortable, you're out. I think this is, I think this is a warning. It's possible to grow hardened against the gospel. And it's possible to do that in two ways. You remember the, the story of the prodigal son. Here's a way that people reject God. You can do it two ways. You can do it by rejecting all the rules like the prodigal son and going into a far country and living licentiously, right? Living a profligate life, eating the, the husk of the swine. Or you can do it like the older brother. Remember the elder brother? He kept the rules. He said, Father, I'm... I've, I've never partied with my friends. I've never squandered your money. I've never drugged the family name through the mud by going out and getting prostitutes. Why are, you, why are you honoring our son like this? 
So there's, there's two ways you can grow hardened against the gospel and reject God. One is by being bad, and one is trying really hard to be good. And I think both of those could be represented, really, in this warning. Paul is warning against both of those. He's warning against how we view ourselves. The very next chapter, you know what's important how you think of yourself? Romans chapter 12, the very next chapter, it starts out, and it says this, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Sober judgment. Stay humble and stay fruitful. What fruit is he talking about? Well, there's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, and a few others I always forget. Are you, are you bearing that fruit? Are you staying close to Jesus? Jesus said, if you remain in me, you will what? You will bear much fruit. Apart from me, and he's the true vine, right? He's the true stem. He's the true root. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So all Paul is saying is what the rest of the Bible says. He's saying, remain in Christ. Don't drift. Don't get arrogant. Don't get proud. Don't grow boastful. Or there will be a fall. Like Icarus. You remember the Greek mythology? Icarus was given wings of wax to escape the island where the Minotaur was. And his father, who created the wings for him, warned him, these are made out of wax. Don't fly too high and get too close to the sun or you will, you'll regret it. And he was so intoxicated with this newfound freedom, he flew up high and the wax melted and he fell to his death in the ocean. This is Paul's warning. He says it all over the place. 1 Corinthians 10, you who stand, take heed, what? Lest you Lest you fall. This is Paul's warning. He's boasting. He's telling us to not boast in our privileged position. We stand by faith. We stand by faith. You know, I've tried to think of a modern illustration, and often because of what happened to a celebrity or an influencer or an athlete or an actor or an actress, it gets really messy. You know who came to my mind was Lance Armstrong. You guys remember him? He won seven Tour de France races in a row, man. I mean, I think they were in a row. It's consecutive. Yeah, that means in a row, right? He won seven. Seven times. Have you ever watched any of that race? It's, it's rugged. It's unbelievably hard and challenging. He did it seven years in a row, and he was everyone's hero, and he always said, I did it clean. I did it the right way. I kept the rules. And I think Lance Armstrong started to really get arrogant and think, man, I've, I belong here on the top. And he beat cancer, a certain form of cancer. So he started this uh, campaign. He was philanthropic. He gave money to it. He raised awareness. He raised funds. It was called Livestrong. They wore bracelets. And then it came out that all along he had been doping, which is just a word for performance enhancement drugs that Lance Armstrong. And he boasted the whole time. He was clean. He followed the rules. And you know what happened to him, man? He fell hard. You could almost say Lance Armstrong, because of his pride, got cut off from the athletic world. He's been banned to this day from ever again participating in competitive professional sports. All of his sponsors cut him. Nike cut him. That program that he built cut him. There's so many other modern illustrations. You could think of all the names that I could probably think of. Just as a warning, don't grow arrogant in the privileged position that God put you in. Stay humble. I know that people wonder how this kind of talk, 
be afraid, don't be arrogant, be afraid, lest the thing happen to you. They, they think, how does this square with the rest of the Bible that gives us all these assurances? I mean, goodness, we just came out of Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10, right? And I'm glad you asked. As, a, as your pastor, I want to help you with that. What is Paul actually saying? Is he changing his mind and saying, like, you know, you can actually lose your salvation and yeah, you're in God's hand, but you can like jump out if you're not careful, or you could fall out. Is he saying that? No, he's not saying that at all. He's simply reminding us what the Bible teaches. Those who are true Christians, who are true followers of Jesus, they will endure to the end. They will persevere. They will continue to follow their shepherd. They will hear his voice and they will follow, they will follow him. It doesn't mean you don't have a season of rebellion. A lot of Christians do. I mean, all Christians have seasons of of sin that they go through, right? They make a mistake and they mess up and that's why we confess our sins. He's, he's our advocate. He's faithful. He's just to cleanse us and to renew us and to restore us. David had his moment. That's what Psalm 51 is. But what Paul is teaching here is what the rest of the Bible teaches is that saving faith is staying faith. And that once saved, always following. That's what he's teaching. There's, there are some scriptures like 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. This is what it says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I've actually heard pastors use that of people who left their church. <laughs> saying they're not a Christian. Listen, that's not what it means, okay? If a person leaves the church, like the invisible church, then this, the application is there are people that forsook Jesus. At one time they were following him, and then they turned. Like Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said, Come to me soon. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this world's riches. Right? So this is what John the apostle is saying here. He's saying some have departed from the faith. They've departed from Jesus. He doesn't say they lost their salvation. What does he say? They were never truly Christians, right? That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, many of you will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to you, I never knew you. So I wouldn't, I would be something less than a faithful pastor. Here we are in this passage and, it, and it's got a really pregnant warning in the middle. And I want to be faithful. I don't want blood to be on my hands. I want to warn anybody who's a cultural Christian in this congregation or watching from home, there's no fruit in your life. But you believe this once saved, always saved doctrine, you need to reexamine your reasons for your assurance. Because biblical assurance is faith in Christ. And faith in Christ produces fruit, right? I'm careful the way I say that. Assurance comes from faith, but faith produces fruit. If you're just looking for fruit, you know, you can go crazy. Is it enough? Is it healthy enough? No, you're looking to Christ. You're, if you hold fast to Christ, in fact, let me put up another, uh, this would be a great, yeah, this is a great passage. Here's another warning, okay? And it's in Hebrews. Check this out. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you, that is, you Christian brothers and sisters, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. For we have come to share in Christ if, you see that if? This is a warning. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold 
our original confidence firm to the end. And what is our original confidence? What started us on this journey? Christ. Faith in Him. Not in ourselves. Not in our fruit. Spurgeon had the saying. I'm trying to remember it. He said, I looked for assurance. It came to me like a dove. I looked at my assurance and it flew away. (laughs) If you're just looking at your assurance, if you're just looking at fruit, if you're just looking at this or looking at that, pretty soon it's going to evaporate. You look to Christ. You look to Christ. Your assurance comes from Him. You're following Him. That's what this is about. And give you one more illustration of how promises are actually a means of grace. I hope, I hope that Grace Life Church, grace is in our name. I hope that you don't get unsettled. If, if you're a disciple of Jesus and you're following Jesus, okay, I hope that warnings don't scare you. I hope they sober you. I hope they humble you. I hope they help you. But I hope they don't scare you and I hope you're not dismissive of them because they're amazing things. I love my children and listen, I tell my children, you're as safe in my yard and my house as you could ever be, but don't stick your finger in electrical sockets. Don't go play in the road. I warn them all the time. You're secure, but be careful, right? And we see that in the New Testament in the book of Acts. This is one of my favorite passages. It's Acts 27. It's a great illustration of both security and a sober warning. Here's what the Apostle Paul, here's what's going on with the Apostle Paul there. Luke writes the book of Acts, but it's the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys. He's on his way to Rome. He's on this big ship. There are 276 people on the ship. And because Romans will be Romans, they left in the dead of winter or too close to winter, and they shouldn't have. Paul warned them. He said, this is not a good idea. We shouldn't do this. We're we're testing fate. We're risking our lives. But they did it anyway. And sure enough, this violent nor'easter came down, and they were caught up in the vortex of the storm. They think they're going to die. It's been total and complete blackout for days. They haven't eaten anything. They haven't drank anything. They've already thrown all their cargo overboard. And they're just waiting to die. And then this is what happens. All hope of their survival has been lost. And then this is what happens. Check this out. Paul stood up among them and he said, Men, I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now stop there. That would be an incredible thing to hear from an apostle. If you're in the middle of a storm, you've thrown your cargo overboard, you haven't eaten or drank, and it's in the dark, you're just waiting to die, and an apostle of Christ stands up and says, Men, take heart, take heart. There will be no loss of life, thus saith the Lord. You'd feel really encouraged, wouldn't you? I would. Check this out. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted to you all those who sail with you. Meaning, all of these men are going to arrive safely in Rome with you, unhurt, unharmed, with their life intact. So again, assurance. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some island. Now check this out. So you got the assurance, you've got the security. Once saved, always saved, right? Check this out. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, 
and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, we cannot be saved. Now, do you hear that? Is everybody tracking with me? Everybody got really quiet. Are you tracking with me? Paul said, everyone's going to be saved. There will be no loss of life. God has granted all 276 persons lives. And then he says, but be careful. Get back in the boat or we're all going to drown. What's that? Well, it's the same concept. It's not a concept. It's a reality that we have in the New Testament. There's assurance. There's security. And it's rich and it's powerful and it's deep. And there's also a warning to persevere. Saving faith is staying faith. So this is a promise. Remain in me. Remain on the tree, right? Be branches that stay connected to, that, to, uh, to the stem, to the tree itself, to the trunk. And you're secure. So you have on the one hand, the Bible says that once God saves you, you'll always be saved. On the other, you have, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. You have to put the two things together. And it says, if your faith endures to the end, that is evidence that you had the salvation you could never lose. If it doesn't, that means you never had it to begin with. Look, I have childhood friends that went to church, that went to church camp, that grew up hearing the gospel and made a profession of faith. And I've gone back to my hometown in Arkansas, and man, they say, I'm an atheist now. I don't believe at all, or I'm agnostic. And what do, what do I make of that? I can't say that I believe they lost their salvation. I don't believe that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. John 10 says, I and my Father are greater than all. None can snatch them out of my hand. Paul in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. What I do conclude is that, man, their faith was not authentic. They were deceived. And there's plenty of evidence that that can happen. So I want to be a good and faithful shepherd to you. You know, there, there are all those passages in the Bible that say examine yourself. And it doesn't mean you're perpetually examining yourself all the time. You're always questioning. God doesn't want a paranoid Christian, okay? That's not what he wants. He wants you to have assurance. And your assurance comes from you looking to Christ and persevering in your belief in Jesus. That's what this is saying. Okay, last point, guys. This is a really fast one, really quick. And it's an encouraging, encouraging point too. And it is this, a notice of God's power. A notice of God's power. So here's the last thing he says. Let's look in verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. So let's stop there. If you think about the nation of Israel, you think about the Jews, you think about how hard their heart is how blind their spiritual eyes are, how far away they are, how impossible it looks that they will ever embrace Jesus as their Messiah. Paul's serving notice here. He's saying, don't forget how powerful God is. And here's the way he reminds us. He says, look, he was able to take you, you stinking wild olive branch that bore no fruit. He's able to do that with you, and it was unnatural. You were a plum tree. They're, a, they're a, a, an olive tree or whatever illustration you want to use in the gardening horticultural world. You weren't even the same kind of tree. God cut you, cut them, brought you in, and you bore fruit. How much more? This is Paul's favorite argument in verse 24. Check it out. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more, how much more 
will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Because let's be honest, you look at the nation of Israel, you look at the rejection of Jesus, you think it'll never happen. It'll never happen. You can preach the gospel to an Israelite till you're blue in the face, it'll never happen. And Paul says, be careful, my friends. We serve a powerful God. And all you need to do to remind yourself how powerful he is, is look at the movement of the Gentile nations. Listen, all these closed countries, China, Japan, all the Asia countries, really, and the Latin countries, and the European countries, they were barbaric. They were steeped in idolatry, and God was able to turn them back. Here, look at this. Here's, here's a good reminder. This is a letter written to a Gentile city in Corinth. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, no men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. <laughs> He's saying, all you Gentiles, you were all those things. You were all those things. And he says, you were. That's the, one of the most encouraging past tense words in the New Testament, isn't it? Such were some of you. But check this out. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying, if God did that to the Gentiles who were so far from God, you think it's any trick for God to take the whole nation of the, uh, of the Israelites and regraft them in? You think that's hard for God? You think His hand is weak, His arm has been shortened, that He can't do that? Oh, God can do it, and God will do it. That is the prophetic hope that we have. And friends, I pray that I'm alive to see it. It's going to be something to behold. If their rejection was this great or this big, this powerful, he says their acceptance is going to be a global movement that we talked about last time, right? It's going to bring in, it's going to be part of the millennial kingdom, a lot of people believe. Man, I pray that I'm a part of that generation that gets to see that. I was sharing with my, uh, with my wife the other day, one of my heroes, John G. Patton, he was a Scottish missionary who went to the New Hebrides Islands and it was just renowned for, for violent, aggressive cannibals. And they, listen, not only did they kill every missionary that came there, they ate them. Like nobody wanted to go there. They're too far gone. They're too idolatrous. They're too dark. John Patton went there. He came there with his wife and his son. The first few months they were there, his wife and his son died of a tropical fever of some kind. This is how bad the culture was there. He slept over their grave to keep the natives from digging up the body of his wife and son and eating them. That's how superstitious and idolatrous they were. So that was the people group he was going to reach, and he wouldn't leave. He stayed there. He kept at it. He served the cannibals in the South Sea Islands for decades and decades, and the first several years were unbelievably hazardous for him. Once a hostile chief followed John Patton around for four hours with a loaded musket aimed at his head. So that's how violent and angry and barbaric they were. It says Patton prayed and spoke kindly to the man who eventually lowered the weapon and left. <clears throat> On one occasion, John and a converted native were surrounded by raging natives wanting to kill them both. But then this, within 15 years, Patton saw the entire island come to Christ. Man, that fills me with such hope. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's saying, if you're forgetting God's power, just think how easy it was for God to take you and graft you in. Think of all the hostile people groups you would have think never be reached. All of Europe reached, I mean, for the most part, every representative group, right? All of Asia reached. 
And we're still trying to reach these people groups whose language we haven't translated the Bible into yet. But this is what John Patton said. Within 15 years, he saw the entire island come to Christ. When he went to the New Hebrides Islands, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. And the first time that he served communion, when they had their first church, this is, I wanted to read this. We'll close with this. We had toiled and prayed and taught for this for years. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus Christ himself. It's pretty unbelievable, isn't it? And listen, guys, that should humble us. That should fill us with hope. It should fill us with wonder. Never give up on the people you think are the hardest to reach, especially if it's a Jewish person or an Israelite. God is able to graft them in. He can do it individually, and he will do it as a people group. And he wants to use you. You play a role in that. Remember, our faith, the richness that we've been given by God, by sheer grace, is supposed to make people envious in a good way. Like, man, how do they have that security? It's because of Jesus. Don't you? You, can, you want in on this? <laughs> Anybody can get in on this. God gives you an on-ramp. It's faith. It's faith alone. So, I'm just grateful to be here. Are you? Are you a grateful insider? You're a grateful insider who wants to go reach some outsiders and bring them inside too, right? That's why we're left here. That's why at the end of every single service, we say we have been what? Sent. We've been sent to the outsiders. Listen, they are not the enemies. They are the mission field. Don't grow arrogant. Don't grow boastful. Stay filled with wonder, with hope. Persevere to the end. Be a grateful insider, and let's go find some outsiders. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this truth, for this hope. Thank you that it's simple faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves us. It's nothing that we do. It's not by the sweat of our brow. It's not by the work of our hands. It's not because we're morally superior. Lord, you picked us to put your saving grace on display. We were the worst of the worst. We were so far, so far outside of your kingdom, living in darkness. And you came and you rescued us and you brought us in. And you have anchored us and you have secured us. I pray, Lord, these warnings will not leave anyone unsettled. Who shouldn't be unsettled? Rather, you would use this, Lord, to provoke faith in those who have been deceived and are being presumptuous. We don't get to talk about this very much at Grace Life. I want to be a faithful pastor, Lord. It's right in front of us in Romans 11. I pray that we would take heed to these warnings that Paul gives. He gave them as a loving pastor, and I give them as a loving pastor too, Lord. I love this congregation. I love these people. I want all of us together to persevere in saving faith, Lord, to look to Jesus, to remain in Him, and to see abundant fruit flow from our life, Lord, to never grow boastful or arrogant or feel spiritually elite, just to remember, Lord, that we're here, we stand because of our faith, and I pray that we would be grateful today, and you would do the work that only you can do. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, listen, this is uh, the time of our service where we have a song of reflection. It's our, we call it our Selah song. And this is a, as good a Sunday as ever to just reflect on what you've heard. Just chew on this text, man. Meditate on this text. Say, Lord, what are you showing me here? 
Is it that I don't have a, a lot of hope and you wanted to fill me with hope today that you can save anybody, you can do anything? Is it that I needed this warning? I've been presumptuous. I'm not really following Jesus. It's in name only. There's no fruit in my life. But I have falsely trusted in this doctrine that I have abused and misconstrued. Or is it rather God just wanted you to know that he loves you and that he wants you to be in his kingdom, man. He wants you to be in his family. There is room at the table. And there's no reason, there's no reason that right now, today, this very moment, you can come in. You can come into the kingdom. God gives you an on-ramp. Anybody can get in on this. Turn from your sin. Look to Jesus. Ask him to save you. Ask him to rescue you. And he will. And we have a prayer team in the back that would love to talk with you, encourage you, pray with you. Or you can fill out, you can do it old, old school style. You can fill out a card and drop it in the box. And if you want somebody to reach out to you and help you and counsel you, we'd be happy to do that. So I'm going to pray and let Kyle play. And we'll have our song of reflection. And then we'll have some announcements and be dismissed. Lord, thank you for, for this time together. Thank you for both the encouragement and the hope and the sober warning that you have given, Lord, and just the reminder about your sheer grace and about faith, simple, plain, clear faith in Jesus alone. That is enough. That is all you require, Lord, is faith in Jesus. Look and live. It's not moral earnestness, Lord. It's not a grocery list or a bucket list or a to-do list of any kind. It's to really turn from that, turn from trusting in that, and instead trust in the one who accomplished all of it on our behalf. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to feel our desperation and look to you. Pray to all these things in Christ's name. Amen.